You are listening to the OneOfUs.net Podcast Network. OneOfUs.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber-supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to OneOfUs.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Hey, welcome to Digital Noise. I'm here with Sir John Golson. And I'm here with Lord Christopher Cox. <laughs> We're here to talk about all the home releases that came out, well, not just this week. Some of these, I think a few of these aren't out quite yet, and a few of these came out like two weeks ago. We do the best we can, but it's hard when two people have to watch the same discs. And it's not like nobody's ever heard of Detective Pikachu. Yeah, true. <laughs> but we're not starting with Detective Pikachu. Right. We're actually starting with something I was really pleased to get, and that was this big-ass box set, the best of the Carol Burnett show, which is from Time Life, which which has a way of... They're like the people who do that now. They're like, yeah. oh, here's an old show, really old show. Here's like a giant collection thing for it that they sell for reasons reasonably priced, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a mother's day present. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like that sort of thing. And I like this. I thought this says big gold box comes with a big booklet in it and stuff. Uh, it's, uh, 60 episodes on 21 DVDs divided up into three different cases and then a separate case, which was just for the disc. That's the final episode of the show, even though there were several episodes after that. That they came to like reunion shows, but it was like the final in continuity episode yeah. one, which was just basically like little bits and pieces of all their most famous characters. And there were a lot of really famous characters that came out of the show. Um, a lot of really famous actors, a lot of deeply impressive guest appearances by people where you're like, how the fuck did they get them? But you forget the Carol Burnett show was a phenomenon when it was on the air, 11 seasons. There's an interesting bit of promotion in one of the episodes with Burt Reynolds where he's on Carol Burnett's show to promote his upcoming movie, Deliverance. Uh, <laughs> it does not seem like the, the the audience for the Carol Burnett show would be super into Deliverance. I don't know, but uh, Carol Burnett give, gave it her endorsement. She said, oh, he's got this wonderful picture coming out called Deliverance, and make sure you go see that when it comes out. And you're like, <laughs> I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to see that <laughs> yeah. audience going to see Deliverance. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really neat musical stuff in here, too. I was impressed with some of the artists who were a little bit obscure but famous. I forget it was. There's one uh, uh, female folk singer who I had never heard of. And then Courtney, my wife, was like, oh, my God, she was on here? I was like, I, who is she? She's like, she was, like, really famous for, like, three years and then just retired. Was hmm. like, nope, I'm done, not doing it anymore. Refused to do appearances. Uh, like, like, even today, she's like in seclusion, and no one seems to know why. <laughs> yeah, bringing up the musical guests, I think my memory had this, uh, and it is a sketch comedy show, but it still has some of the, it has like a foot in sort of the 70s variety show um, milieu. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, there's something about it that, and, and again, I think it's because they do have the guests or they do have, um, sort of little like non sketch musical asides. Yeah. Um, you know, celebration of like Broadway tunes or things like that. 
um, that feel more like a, like a 70s variety show. But at its heart, it is a sketch comedy show. Yeah, and it had some super memorable sketches I still quote today, like the Mrs. Wiggins sketch with Tim Conway, who didn't start with the show as a full-timer, but over time did, in fact, become I was surprised it... So this was kind of a trip down memory lane, because I used to watch Carol Burnett's show. It used to come on the uh, like late at night after the news when I was a kid. And in reruns, of course. Um, and in my mind's eye, I thought he was in the show more than he was. Like he he's he's well represented in the set, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of the set that doesn't have him in there. And I I think in my in my mind he was sort of always there. Yeah, uh, he kind of started as an occasional guest star, and then he was a. Uh, the most common guest star, and then he was just full-time. Yeah. Um, Harvey Corman was there from the beginning, of course, who's real, just as much of a huge talent as Conway is, just such a great range of characters mm-hmm. he could play. And uh, what's her name? Vicky... I'm Vicky born. Lawrence. Yeah, who did not start with the show either. She actually, I didn't think coming to second or third season, and she was like 18 years old when she started, yeah. which is insane. But, um, yeah, if you've ever, a lot of kids today might be more familiar with Mama's Family, and that was a sitcom that was a spinoff of the Carol Burnett show, where those characters were originally introduced on the sketches from there. But, yeah, I I think that a lot of this still holds up. Some of it doesn't. Some of it is like, like they're referencing, they're doing takeoffs of movies I've never even heard of that came out around then, you know? Yeah. Like, what the fuck is that? But uh, overall, this is a good set. Uh, guest stars like Bob Newhart, Don Rickles, Sammy Davis Jr., Lily Tomlin, Phyllis Diller, Flip Wilson, Burt Reynolds, Bernadette Peters, and tons and tons more, uh, as well as lots of bonus features, including a backstage tour, uh, a reunion of the whole cast, a whole bunch of new featurettes, a whole bunch of never-before-seen outtakes, interviews with Carol, Vicky, Tim, Alan Alda, Julie Andrews, Don Rickles, and a bunch more. It's, it's a solid set. Yeah, there's. Uh, there was also. It made me think about um, what we consider clean comedy mm-hmm. because I was a little surprised at. Uh, you know, I think people always consider Carol Burnett like really clean, um, but there's like a winking sexuality, like oh sure, borderline like role reversal where she's the sexual harasser to some of like the male guests and things like that, where she's like, I'll see you in the dressing room later. Or like, you better be backstage waiting on me. Like that kind of stuff. Uh I mean, she talks about her husband and her family when she's, uh, you know, talking to the audience, but she's not afraid to like, there's times too, where I've seen her like wink or slap her ass at somebody that's on stage with her and stuff. So she's like, it made me think about like, why did my grandparents or parents consider this like really, really clean? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's there, like yeah. it's not even it's in your window. Like it's there, yeah. It's kind of burlesque. I was, I was a little surprised by that. Um, and it, it's not that it's like vulgar, or dirty, but no. she displays a sexual identity that I did not pick up on when I was a kid. Sure. That I picked up on as an adult, where I'm like, oh, she's like, uh, <laughs> she's like a, a real woman, and she finds men attractive, and you know, and isn't afraid to work that into her her comedy. So one odd thing I did not know was uh, apparently Harvey Corman left at the uh, end of season ten, and in an effort to replace him, they got Dick Van Dyke to come mm-hmm. on as a series regular. Who apparently, although she, he, she and Carol stayed, he and Carol stayed friends. They just said they never really found that spark, so he leaves halfway through season 11, but the huh. first half of season 11's got Dick Van Dyke in every episode. Yeah, I, I watched... The, the collection's weird in that it's just a smattering of episodes. It's just like, there's no completion, there's no there's no apparent rhyme or reason to the episodes that were selected. Um, you know, I, I think there's still, you know, 
there's still something to be mined in a actual box set that releases them in chronological order so you can get the full run of the show. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is really great if you're a fan at all. I mean, it, it, you'll see all the classic characters and all the classic sketches and just dial the 1-800 number that you see on your screen now and you'll receive the Time Life <laughs> Best of Carol Burnett DVD box set. But don't order yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. You could get this tote bag and this <laughs> jade elephant pendant. Um, next up is Plus One. Yes, we're reviewing a romantic... We're reviewing more than one romantic comedy this week. And, and good news. The romantic comedy is alive and well <laughs> in 2019. It's, it, it sort of is. Although I've found that more often than not, the romantic comedies I see that I enjoy are not the big Hollywood release romantic comedies. Yeah. They tend to be either little indie things or even foreign films in this case, although certainly... One I never would have expected. Um, but this one is the little indie film, and that's Plus One. Maya Erskine and Jack Quaid play people who have been friends for most of their lives. Um, you ask, as well as they start, start to ask, why have we never done anything? But they're like, oh, that'd be gross. Ooh. But their whole thing is they basically are of that age where everyone they know is getting married. So they have this just slew of constant weddings they're invited to, and they decide to be each other's... Uh, sort of wedding date for these to save on hotel rooms, to like have somebody else to make, you know, you go to my weddings, I'll go to your weddings. And also to sort of like help each other hook up with other people. And of course it goes exactly, exactly where you'd expect it would go. Uh, But all that being said, I found uh, Jack Quaid and Maya Erskine kind of charming together in this. Yeah. And I thought this had some genuinely funny moments in it. It doesn't fire on all cylinders, certainly. And I wish it wasn't as utterly predictable as it actually is. I mean, this is just a a tried and true formula for sure, but with maybe a little more cynicism than you usually expect. But I think overall, this was pretty good. There's a nice cast of extra people. Ed Begley Jr., Finn Whitrock, John Bass, Emma Bell, Maya Kazan. I don't know. What did you think of this one? I liked it a lot. It's a very conversational romantic comedy. You're kind of hanging out with the main couple uh, for most of the the film's runtime. When I got this disc from you, I I had not seen Jack Quaid in anything, and I said I had not heard of Maya Erskine, and then the movie started, and I was like, holy crap, that's the girl from Pen15, which mm. is great. I've heard that's great. It's on Hulu. That. It's a, it's a series about um, these two girls in junior high, but the act, the people who write the show, which are her and another actress play the junior high versions of themselves on the show. (laughs) So they play 14 year olds and they keep a cast though of like preteens. So they're interacting with preteens as junior high uh, in adult bodies, basically. Um, And she's really funny on that. So the minute I saw her on screen, I was like, Oh, well I'm in like, and she plays, she she seems to know that she has a very specific comic persona or voice, and she plays basically very similar to how she plays on Pin Fifteen. She's kind of a she's kind of brass brash and uh, a little bit perverted, and like it, she's it's the same comic voice. It's really funny. Um, I like this a lot. I wasn't crazy about the third act. I think you, if you've seen a lot of romantic comedies, you sort of watch this one and go, well, there, there's going to be another shoe that drops, and it kind of it did not feed into the rest of the story. My hope for it was that at the end of the summer of weddings that they would kind of go, well, now what? Yeah. Like, now that we have to return to our regular lives, now what? And I was like, that's a great organic uh, seed of conflict. 
to be able to go, can we actually do this now that, now that we're not forced to have car rides and hotels together? Can we actually maintain this? Right. That to me is a more interesting conflict that was not explored. Instead, the conflict is sort of like, uh, I'm not sure. And it's like, that's a really boring conflict. Like, that doesn't tie into what we've seen before. It doesn't really feed into the rest of the story. Right. It also just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it and it wraps up with a tidy bow. So yeah, it does get predictable. Mm. Um, but this, but at the same time, it's 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 quite enjoyable. And yeah, it hits its rom com beats, but it's it does so pretty well. It's a decent date movie that you're not going to feel your intelligence is completely insulted by, uh, as opposed to quite a few others yeah. out there. You know, if you're like with you're trying to find something your girlfriend will like too, or boyfriend, as the case may be, and. Uh, this is one that you're not going to regret watching, I suspect. Also, Jack Quaid, of course, is the star of The Boys, which is on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, Meg Quaid, uh, Meg, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's kid. And he looks like Dennis Quaid's face in Meg Ryan's head. <laughs> That's what he, I was like. Now I'm not going to be able to yeah. unsee that. Thanks, John. <laughs> well, another uh, romance film is The Souvenir. This was one of those movies that played at Sundance. Some people praised this so heavily it was unbelievable. Other people just acted like, I don't get it. And I was like, I suspect I'm going to be one of the I don't get it's. And sure enough, uh, okay. <laughs> I was one of those. Yeah, I was kind of curious yeah. what you th- what you thought of this one. Uh, Tilda Swinton's daughter, is uh, Honor Swinton Byrne, is the star of this playing Julie. She's uh, attending film school. Uh, she uh, wants to make a movie. And... Uh, she meets this guy who has a cleft palate, but they no one ever acknowledges it. You notice that? It was like, that was odd that this guy's got a very visible cleft palate. But um, she, uh, Anthony, who, who uh, works at the foreign office, they almost immediately move in together, and uh, things go slowly, oh so slowly sideways as we start to realize this guy isn't everything he presented himself as being. I mean, other than that, I guess there's a lot of stuff going on, but honestly, I found myself just honestly falling asleep trying to keep watching this movie, and I was shocked at the end that, of all things, this very staid, like, beyond indie indie art drama ends with Coming Soon, The Souvenir Part 2. I was like, what? (laughs) I'm I'm not even sure exactly what I was supposed to get out of that one. I don't know. Did you find anything of value here? Because I was having a hard time. I mean, I like that Tilda Swinton actually appears as her mother in, mm-hmm. at one point, but she's not in it anywhere yeah. near enough. Um, I don't know. I just- uh, so I've heard this is semi-autobiographical from from the writer-director, Julia Hogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the film is told through like a little open, win- open and closed windows. So mm-hmm. it's, the film is told almost like in a montage structure, so there's not really a plot. Things follow a timeline, but it's like you kind of get a window into this particular moment, then that closes. Then you get a window into this particular moment, and then that closes. So you're not... The scenes have no A-B connection. They just have timeline connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I was into it at all. I, uh, it was a it was pretty difficult um, just because I I... 
it was so low key. I also think a lot of it felt improvisational to me in regards to dialogue and things like that. It felt like people were just sort of guided in the scene as to what they needed to say and do to that make is, it feel more real. Yeah, that actually is what happened. Oh, okay. Apparently, Honor, the lead actress, did not was not given a script. The other actors had a script, though, and she was supposed to act. She knew the general way her character was supposed to go, but wanted her to just react honestly to the other character's dialogue, yeah. which is an interesting way to film a movie. But I think that's the problem is a lot of time movies that take chances like that end up with not very interesting, very meandery type movies. So there's a moment in this where they're at a dinner party and she learns a secret about her new boyfriend that she didn't know that he'd kept hidden from her. That's a pretty big bombshell, but is it because it's a dinner party has to be handled like super casually. And that's kind of when it got me on the hook. And then I was with it for the rest of the running time. Uh, it is difficult. It's not a. It's not an exciting movie. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it's not even a movie where I felt it didn't like speak to me or like touch some deeper part of my soul. But something about that scene, I found myself at that point. Then I was like, okay, I'm invested enough to have enough interest to like ride this out. Because honestly, Chris, the first thirty minutes of this, I was like. I'm in trouble because I'm going to have to talk about this movie and and I don't even want to watch this movie. Yeah. And And I don't know what there is to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) You know, not a lot of we like you gave that basic plot synopsis. Other than that, it's just criticisms of the stylistic choices. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this kind of reminded me of like one of those dogma 95 films. I mean, for one thing, they used all natural lighting. Apparently there was a lot of non-actors working in it as well. I was like, so this whole movie just feels like more of an exercise than like any sort of finished project. Which is why our up, uh, upper crust muckety muck critic peers all gave it five stars right. and declared it one of the best films of the year. So. <laughs> I, I was baffled. I'm like, <laughs> went into it excited. Like I can, I don't mind. I can take really arty stuff, yeah. you know, and like that's all metaphor or what have you. And this was just. I was dying trying to find something to hold on to. I'm sympathetic. I liked it more than you, but I get it. <laughs> I get it. You're one of them damn muckety mucks. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm, 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 I, I don't think it, I, to me, it's like a three star movie. Okay. Um, because it, it does what it set out to do, but it doesn't do more than it set out to do. So to me, it's like a three star. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. The third movie in our romance trilogy of reviews today, and I think the best of the three, because wow, this is, I've never this seen This cracked my top ten Did it? of the year. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I've never seen anything like it, is How Long Will I Love You? Now I can completely understand, as a, as a movie viewer who might like be like, I normally just watch genre type related films, that title is a total turnoff, right? Like, no, I'm not going to be watching that. Dude, every, so when you give me, you know, digital noise films and you're like, uh, here's the ones that we're going to be talking about. I tend to watch them in order of what I'm most excited to watch mm-hmm. to least. This was the bottom of the stack. I actually just watched this today. It was at the bottom of the stack. The cover was a complete turnoff. I was like, oh, God, I do not want to watch this. So, like, yeah, I, I, I'm the person you're speaking to now. Yeah, and it's described, it's a Chinese fantasy romantic comedy, which right there should be a no. I've seen these type of films before, and they're not good. <laughs> like the Chinese, there's something that just doesn't translate a lot of the time with that sort of thing. The good news is, you've never really seen anything like this. This is a weird, kind of brilliant time travel conceit. And no, if you're one of those people who's a stickler for 
finding every the rule of time travel being straight that you're going to have problems. But it's so lighthearted and fun, it's kind of hard to give a shit about whether or not they break some rules here or there. And honestly, sometimes a little hard to tell if, if, if they are or if you're just misunderstanding exactly what's happening. But you just watched this, so why don't you describe it? I did it just watch it. Uh, so there is a, uh, a young woman, um, who fancies herself as kind of a upper class citizen. She likes the finer things in life. Um, but however, she's dirt poor. There's another guy. He's a land developer, kind of down on his luck. Um, he's scrappy. He's trying to make things work. He just can't get it together. Uh, he has a little dingy apartment and she has a little dingy apartment and one day their dingy apartments converge in time and space yeah. and they realize that one of them, the girl happens to be living in 2018 and the guy happens to be living in 1999 uh, which you wouldn't think, okay well that's, is there significant enough cultural difference? Maybe there's not, but what the film does is start to set up a series of events where they realize that the knowledge that they get from their respective timelines uh, can be used to alter the course of their lives. Uh, it, it This was delightful mm-hmm. and twisty-turny and light and funny and surprising. This was so good. And there were lots um, of things like details with the time travel thing I thought were fun. They explain it too. Yeah. I thought it was just going to be like rom-com magical mystery. Like, oh, they, they're, they're, this is fate. So that's why their rooms are, share a time space. No, but there's like a scene with scientists explaining like, well, do you know the Bermuda Triangle? There's a place in China where time and space converge. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. This is like they're giving it like, <laughs> So it's giving it pseudoscience, but there's like quasi sci-fi elements to That's, it. It's an odd, unnecessary, but welcome yeah. <laughs> sequence. I like that. So you think, oh, the obvious thing, the lottery, right? Mm-hmm. Or picking gambling yeah. things. And the moment they try and do anything that would drastically change the timeline, there's like a, a time quake. Things yeah. are going crazy. And they're like, okay, clearly that's not something we can do. Or things that, like, at one point they, they pick a lottery and the numbers just change mm-hmm. after the, the numbers are called, so they don't win. It's like, well, fuck. So there's, it's not as easy as the people always go, well, I'd just do this. Yeah, she tries to approach, she sees her... She There's a door, and the door opens two ways. The hinges are on the left or the right, depending on how they who who opens the door if the girl opens the door she opens it to 2018 if the guy opens the door he opens it to 1999 mm-hmm. so he opens the door for her she goes back and she sees herself and her father this is early on in the film but as she approaches them time and space literally begin to unravel and tear apart and break apart mm-hmm. so any kind of like you know alteration in that way any alteration that they do has to be done to their current selves any change that they make they have to they have to make with the knowledge that they're armed with they can't actually go actively like uh alter something that has been pre-established like right. she can't go meet her she can't go meet herself in the past right um it's cool it's a really cool movie it's it's a neat way of handling an old conceit yeah uh for sure and they get all the details right the couple who at first you're like I don't, there's no way these two are going to get together. They just don't seem like they have any chemistry. The actors are good enough that they build chemistry as it goes along in a very convincing way. The one complaint I had at all is that, like, the older version of the dude, mm-hmm. 
they didn't make any attempt to make him older other than, like, put glasses, a different pair of glasses on him. I yeah. was like, he's literally, it's supposed to be 20 years later, and he looks exactly the same. <laughs> he took care of himself. Yeah. That's what it is. I guess so. He took care of himself. I think part of that, I think part of that non-chemistry, um, they, yeah, they could have had more, they could have had more chemistry. I think she's the, I think she's the, not weak link, but, her character is less likable than his. And I think that the, the film solves the problem of a rom-com with two characters that don't have a tremendous amount of chemistry Mm -hmm. by making it so personal and individualistic to the characters. Like she ends up having to do a lot of soul searching about what it is she actually wants because she thinks that she wants a certain life and a certain, uh, a certain man and a certain future. And, uh, I think because so much of the film is her having determined for herself what she wants, it it's it did not matter as much to me that I didn't feel like uh, there were some great romantic sparks or heat between them. Um, the weirdly, apparently, there's homages in here to the Lake House and the Time Traveler's Wife. Oh, there's homages, blatant homages to Titanic, to yeah. Inception, yeah. to um, what's the oh, Brokeback freaking Mountain, yeah. which was hilarious. Yeah, it's a very Americanized Chinese film in yeah. some ways. Honestly, I think it's only a matter of minutes before this gets signed yeah. up for a remake. I was telling Wendy the exact same thing. I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, this is the this is the kind of movie that gets remade. Yeah. This is the kind of movie that some studio will will get the rights to and you'll see it. Because apparently it's based on novels, mm. a series of novels. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't know that until today. Um, but yeah, I, I would not be surprised at all if you don't see a Western remake of this. But I think this translates just fine as it is to American oh, audiences. And yeah. I highly, highly recommend it. Very accessible. I'm just giving this my pick of the week. It's my pick of the week, and and like I said, it cracked my it cracked my top ten of the year, and and it probably will stay in the list unless this unless the latter half of this year is just packed with awesomeness. Well, our next one is one I already reviewed the highly suspect review for Detective Pikachu, and much to my surprise, as much as I have literally no connection to Pokemon, I mean, mm-hmm. I just I think I played the Pokemon Go game for like a month and was like, yes, yeah, eats up too much memory on my phone, and got rid of it. That's about it. That's about my whole reference point to Pikachu. I went into this going, well, I like Ryan Reynolds, who's voicing the little yellow Pikachu in here. Uh, but other than that, I'm not terribly confident about this thing. But to my surprise, this it's not like an all-time great movie, but it's certainly filled with charm and has a lot of, of, of laughs in it. I mean, so, John, you're the one who has not given a review of this, so talk about the plot real quick and then tell me what you think. Oh, the plot is, you know, it's Pokemon times... People live in the Pokemon times, what with the Pokemon and the <laughs> battling of the Pokemon, and everywhere you look, there's a Pokemon. Well, there's a Pokemon at the Pokemon place that makes uh, a, a guy in a, have a car accident, and his son... Uh, <laughs> Justice Smith. Justice Smith is trying to put together the details of uh the nefarious possibly pokemon related death of his father uh he meets a pikachu who can talk in english but only justice smith's character can hear him and the two of them work together to both solve the murder and find out what is why do they share this mysterious connection uh there's some there's some like weak kind of 
backstory nonsense about like an evil corporation that feels like something you've seen in like a bajillion other movies. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> you this, realize this is just a remake of Roger Rabbit, right? Oh uh, yeah, it kind of is, I guess. I mean, the main character who's reluctantly investigating, who's the only person who hates the cartoons mixed fused with human university lives in, like everybody else loves him. And he's like, Oh, I fucking hate Pokemon. Like, just like the character from uh, Roger Rabbit, he's forced to team up with a popular cartoon character in order to solve a murder. You're right. <laughs> I thought this might be the best video game movie ever made, uh-huh. but also like the 24,000th best detective movie ever made. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's a So it sits somewhere in the middle of all that. Um, <laughs> I thought it was the first video game movie that I've seen that felt like it had a grasp on blockbuster filmmaking and could deliver like blockbuster filmmaking thrills. Um, but it's also, there's something about it that's so, it's weird because it, there's something about it that I found like real passive in the middle of the road while I watched it. Like it's there, all the ingredients are there. I think if you're a really big Pokemon fan, this movie's like a godsend to you. For me, and I've played the Pokemon Game Boy games. I was never into the cards. I was already too old for Pokemon. Mm. Um, but I like an RPG and it's at its core, the, the portable games are turn-based RPGs. Okay. You go town to town, you talk to people, and you fight their monsters. Um, and having no real love for, for Pokemon as a property, I thought this was pretty well done just from a competent filmmaking standpoint. Special effects are fantastic. It's A+. I honestly thought from a box office standpoint that this was going to be like one of the summer's like mega hits based on the response to the trailer. Yeah. I was really surprised that it did not open. It did well, but it didn't do like the gang. I thought it was going to do like awesomely well. I was expecting like 800 million. Yeah. And it ended at 431.6 million, which is nowhere near what, what predictions. Yeah. It, it proves it. I think it kind <laughs> of, it might prove that there is a glass ceiling to the, uh, like popularity or or general public acceptance of video game movies. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, and part of that might be specifically because Pokemon is so aimed at younger kids mm-hmm. um, that a lot of people who even like video games are like, yeah, no, I don't want to watch a Pokemon movie. I, I, that, speaking of the younger kids thing, you know, they're not going to be very familiar with Ryan Reynolds, but as somebody who is familiar with Ryan Reynolds... This is like the most generic, watered-down version of Ryan Reynolds as yeah. well. I really wish somebody else would have played Pikachu. Yeah. Um, Danny DeVito was the one everybody was calling. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, this was super... Uh, it was exactly like... You could probably pause the movie before he says a one-liner and guess what the one-liner is and then hit play and he would probably say that. Yeah. Like, it, it if was... You know, yeah. If you've seen a lot of Ryan Reynolds yeah. movies. Yeah. Um, He's yeah. kind of got his... It's like Deadpool watered down is his thing. And like even in when we saw Hobbs and Shaw, he's in yeah. it. And you're like, this is just... You're playing Deadpool again, basically, except you're not the guy who's the badass. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's his style of humor, and it works for him. You know, but there are times you're like, okay, that's a little... Ryan Reynolds can go a long way with that. I liked the world of the movie, too. I yeah. think I think ultimately this is a good movie that I just didn't really care for. Okay. I, I mean, I found myself... Enjoying it, but wishing it was more. Yeah. Like, I was like, this was so close to being a really genuinely good movie. And as it is, it's a okay movie. Like, what do you think it's missing, exactly? I I think, for one thing, it needed to fix the punch-up a bit. It needed a little bit more work on on that. Um, They, like, funnier? Yeah, just a little bit funnier. At points, it was like... 
it just got so dragged down in the plot, and I'm like, are we really watching this giving a shit about the plot? Yeah, that's, (laughs) yeah, I think you're right. Um, but there were some fun bonus features here. Uh, one of the best scenes in this whole thing is where they have to interrogate a mime Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was genuinely really funny. And there's kind of a little expansion thing on that. Mr. Mime's audio commentary that, honestly, the joke is there is no commentary. It's just that scene. And it's like, the mime comes back out and they subtitle, oh yeah, I forgot, I can't talk. It's like, okay. Um, there's Ryan Reynolds outside the actor's studio, which I genuinely made me laugh because he does this thing where he's like, you know, I'm a very serious actor. And when I got this call, I was on the way to pick up my daughter and I realized I have to stop everything I'm doing right now because this is the role of a lifetime. So I didn't go pick her up, (laughs) which she I'm sure understands because her father's a very serious actor. And then like they interviews his wife. Uh, what is her name? Uh, from the shallows and all that. Oh, is he married to a, a, a? She was in Green Lantern with him. Yeah, um, Black Lively, Man. Blake Lively. Yeah, Blake Lively. Who <laughs> at one point he's like, I know that their kids will never have any problem seeing their daddy by just putting in the DVD of Detective Pokemon anytime they want watching. Yeah. it. and they switch to her, and she's like, Yeah, we're never going to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> So there's some cute little bonus features on here. Um, I like you, like we both said. For fans of Pokemon, I suspect this is a godsend. For people who uh, general audiences who don't care about Pokemon at all, which is is me largely, um, it's still very enter- light and good light entertainment. It's you hope your kid doesn't fall too madly in love with it, so you have to watch it 300 times. But- I think I think you hit it right on the head with the Roger Rabbit comparison because the way that the world is treated. I I like the vibe of the world, how people and Pokemon just interact and walk the streets together, and like they're they're sometimes they're animals, but sometimes they're like useful, like members of society, right? And that kind of reminds me of Roger Rabbit, and that there are like weird animals walking around, but there are also like cartoon policemen and stuff like that, and like road workers, and right. uh, it does have like a like a very at its best, it does have a very like down to earth. Uh, World, even though it's futuristic and everything, there's something about it that's like very normalized. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like I said, Roger Rabbit, yeah. <laughs> same thing. Uh, so you didn't see these next two, but I want to talk briefly about season seven of Arrow and season five of Flash. Starting off with season seven of Arrow, which this is the first time one of these box sets for a CW show has come out that I hadn't already watched the whole show as it was airing because Arrow just has gotten to this point that it was kind of a struggle for me to want to keep watching. Is seven the penultimate? Is it the next to last? It's the penultimate, yes. Yeah. Season cool. eight is a ten-episode-only season. Oh, which I didn't is, know it was abbreviated. Which, as far as I can tell, and from what I've been told, like the actress who plays Felicity, not in it at all. She left at the end of the season. Um, Arrow himself is basically only in a few episodes, because they started this conceit this season of flash-forwards, Showing, like, oh, this Howard, I think it started last season. You know, because they always did the flashbacks to explain, like, backstory for characters and for for uh, for uh, Green Arrow. And now they're like, oh, well, we kind of ran out of stories to tell that way, so let's do a thing where it's 20 years later and it's their kids. You know, all the kids that are being born, been born on the show or people who are pregnant with kids. Okay, this is them, and it's the search for Felicity in the future. Um, and that dominates a lot of the season, which is a little strange because it starts off with doing what I was very excited about at first, uh, which is Green Arrow goes to prison and which sounds like that great unmade, uh, script. Yeah. Supermax. Supermax. And I was like, okay. And it's just all right. You're like, okay. So there's a lot of like 
Arrow in prison, you're like, this is uh, interesting. And then there's even, but there's too much of all the other characters on the outside just kind of shrugging, going, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to be doing right now. Uh, and they introduce, there's a new green arrow that's around the city who nobody knows who it is, but she's actually killing criminals. And it turns out to be his sister that he didn't know he had because his dad had a second family who's, who's got revenge on her mind. And, you know, there's the usual assortment of like, red herring criminals leading to the next criminal and who's actually secretly behind a bunch of stuff that's going on. I mean, Ollie's only in maximum security for a very short period of the actual season. I, I don't know, man. I just, I got through the whole thing, but it was tough. I mean, I'll watch the next season because it's only 10 episodes. And it's wrapping. I'm like, you know, I've watched all this far. I might as well finish the damn thing, but Jesus Christ, dude, they're like just losing like any sort of feeling of, desire to watch any aspect of the show. And Felicity, who's like pretty much my favorite character on the show, leaving, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and yeah. that all is tied into the the next season's big crossover, Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, that does indeed look pretty cool. But this whole season, and even the crossover at this season, which was kind of lame, was just laying the groundwork for Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, even Felicity's departure is about Crisis on Infinite Earths and her, for some reason, going somewhere that has something to do with the sort of the the John the Baptist character, alien character who's been showing up all season warning people about this is coming, badness is coming, crisis is coming. <laughs> I don't know. All I can tell you is uh, I'm thoroughly bored with Arrow. <laughs> I'm glad it's going to be over. Now, I'm... I'll, a little bit more confident about The Flash. Um, it's one of the shows that I don't think it's been really great since the second season. And the first two seasons I thought were damn solid. Third season started to go downhill, and I don't think it ever really recovered from that slide. And this season, although I thought it picked up a bit from the fourth season, suffers from having the absolute dumbest fucking villain they've ever had on here. And it's not even really the problem the way they're written. It's a Cicada, who I was... All well, completely unfamiliar with from the comics. I had never encountered this character before, but they get Chris Klein to play him. Now, Chris Klein, of course, known as the super good jock guy, just the nicest guy in the world from the American Pie movies and pretty much every movie he's ever been in. He always is like, oh, gee, guys, I'm sorry. How can I help? And here he's playing this. I'll get you. I'll kill you all. Man, this guy has zero acting ability. It's to the point that it's it's so over the top and bad that it almost makes it watchable. That you're just like, you have no fucking clue how to do this, do you? You're just like, you're playing a cartoon character here. Like, and I mean, like Looney Tunes. <laughs> it's so utterly absurd. And his whole thing is he's going around trying to kill every other metahuman that's in the world because of something to do with his daughter who's in a coma. Uh, okay. Um, and, uh, uh, does he have powers? Yeah. He's got like this magic fucking lightning bolt shaped dagger that he can fly and throw at people. that just kind of kills any meta or anybody who hits instantly. Hmm. Um, and he's got like a certain amount of like, he could teleport and shit. Like why, that. why is he a cicada? I don't know. I'm not clear on that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Is, is there a part where he sheds his skin and leaves it on an old tree? 
<laughs> that would have been cool. There's a thing where they go, uh, like, is at one point, inexplicably, after like eight attempts to reason with them, he suddenly goes, oh, okay, I come kind of see your point, and immediately dies. Uh, where it's like, oh, and it was his daughter who was in a coma from the future who came back and killed him because she has decided that that the vengeance must oh, be had. Man, I, so I watched the first two seasons of The Flash. I thought they went too fast and too hard with the multiple Earth stuff in the second season. Yeah. And I and when I started the third season, I, there was no turning back from that. Also, in the first season, he fights an evil speedster. In the second season, he fights an evil speedster. And when the third season started with another evil speedster, I was like, can, can we not have at least one season where it's about the rogues? Yeah. Like, literally the core Flash rogues being the threat of the season. Right. Instead of it being yeah. like, oh, here's a mysterious speedster. What is his identity? I don't know. And I'm like, this is three times now we've gotten the mystery, fast-running guy mm-hmm. whose identity is secret. And I was like, there's got to be other ideas out there. Honestly, um, the, so I stopped. With season three, I just stopped cold. To some degree, the comics have suffered from that same exact thing. There's too many goddamn speedsters. I mean, there's so fucking many speedsters, both good and bad ones. And this season now has added, uh, what's her name? Nora, I think. Uh, yeah, who is his, his and, and Iris, Barry and Iris' daughter from the future, who has come back, and we saw her sort of like tooling about last season a bit, but now she's revealed herself and like, oh my god, it's our grown up daughter, who is a speedster as well. And, it's unclear what exactly she's doing there, but then you find out that in the future, she's been talking to a Reverse Flash who's in prison, who's like, I've changed my ways, I genuinely want to help your father, Barry, which you're like, come on, guys, really? Like, at least give us a something that we can mildly, possibly believe. I've never been so disappointed in a... Like, I really did love the first couple seasons, and I think, like, the... the Genius of the Grodd episodes, which should be, yeah. like, impossible. Like, a talking gorilla in a television show sounds like the corniest shit ever, and they pulled it off. Agreed. There's so much stuff that I thought was really good about the first the first season, really, and some of the second season, too. Uh, and and I'm it makes me sad that I grew so cold so fast. Yeah. Um, as someone who grew so cold so fast, and you know, and I've now explained like kind of what turned me off. Are you saying that it never? It there's no reason for me to try to jump back in or catch up. I or, mean, there's always stuff in every like season that I'm like, oh, I like that angle. Like a highlight. Like a like there'll be a cool episode, two dull episodes, and like, oh, that's a kind of cool. Yeah, one. and and the Flash like certainly uh, I think has the same balance of those as Supergirl and uh, um. Legends of Tomorrow, you know, uh, which both have this sort of mixture of, that was lame, oh, that was great. But the arcs on The Flash have just gotten so terrible and predictable and yeah. not fun. And like I said, Chris Klein is the villain. Who let that one casting slip through? I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. I mean, he is just not capable of playing an evil guy. What's the famous audition tape with him? Do you remember that? No. It was like, it went viral. It was him auditioning for some movie, but I can't remember what the movie is. I have no idea. I'll f- we'll figure it out later. Anyway, I almost feel bad because he I'm, maybe he is that nice guy in real life that he plays in every 
every other movie and TV show but this one. But Jesus Christ. Uh, Ralph Dibney is a character I always enjoy on the show, and I think he's got kind of a fun little arc as well here, um, who's starting to deal with, am I, do I really want to even bother con- still considering myself detective? And to what degree am I part of this family, of this the Flash family or whatever, you know? Um, and I like him, and I like the actor who plays him, uh, as well as uh, Caitlin Snow, who's finding out more stuff about her family. Like she didn't really get along well with her mom. Who's like verging on evil scientist, but not quite evil, (laughs) but uh, finds out that her dad, who they thought was dead is actually still alive. And maybe that's not such a good thing, but either way, I mean, this isn't terrible, but it's certainly still kind of got that diminishing rewards thing going on. And I agree. Like when they've had all the rogues on the show, they just have them in minor roles. They'll be like in one-off episodes. The yeah. only one they've done anything interesting with was Captain Cold, and who they had him like, well, him and um, Heat Wave, Heat Wave, yeah. And then and they, they liked him, those so much they made him into anti-heroes almost immediately. Yeah, and yeah. Turn, and they were great on Legends of Tomorrow. And then they got rid of Captain Cold, who died. And then they kind of, I thought, neatly brought him back as a guy who was always a hero from Earth, whatever. Nazi Earth, uh, but he's gay and in a relationship with the Ray, which I thought was kind of a neat little arc thing they had set up with them. And I like you, one of those, that actor, there's something about him, you're like, you're obviously great at playing a mustache twirling bad guy, yeah. but there's also something about that same attitude that makes you a really fun good guy at the same time. Um, I, I, I think every fan has been like, bring them back, but... Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Anyway, let's go back to regular stuff and talk... Well, regular stuff. Let's talk about the movie Assassinat. There's an awkward title for you. Mm-hmm. Man, there's an awkward movie for you. Uh, this is... there's It's Earth in the future. <laughs> Aliens, I guess, have invaded. I was not entirely clear on what the crisis... The, the, the details of the crisis were. But it follows this teen girl who has gotten picked to go into the great the the space station that the president of the earth i guess lives on and uh when she's there there's an assassination attempt and uh, by bombs and they're like oh the station's gonna blow up we gotta go and for some reason they end up on a completely different planet not sure how that happened yeah with like quasi zombie infected people yeah sorta zombie things yeah and, and they're just her and a group of other kids who do not get along with each other at all and don't seem like they would have passed a training program that yes. would have placed them all together for a deep space trip yeah one of them flat out is like I didn't even want to be here science is dumb you're like how in the fuck did you get picked? yeah there's not a lot of um for a sci-fi movie there's not a lot of believable details or color in the edges of this where there where there could be because we're talking about another movie that's like a no budget film that you know some scrappy filmmakers got together and you know shot something ambitious with you know practical effects and honestly fairly good digital effects when it comes to the space stuff it's not awful it's passable uh, the film is really not. It's super half-baked. None of the ideas are really well-defined or thought out. Again, the the performances, the characters are kind of unlikable across the board. Mm. There were moments of this where I felt like the script probably would have made like a, a passable comic book, but it doesn't make a passable film. No. No, I, I and I could see this the origin the, the base idea like yeah that would make a good comic book. Oh, kids go to space for the first time. Yeah, like, and yeah. then end up having to like use their various knowledge bases of which, like I said, the one kid has none at all uh, to survive in this alien wilderness that's got zombies running around. Yeah, okay, 
But this movie doesn't have any sense of vision for that. It doesn't have any clear idea on who these kids are and why they're the way they are or why that should be interesting to us. And even proceeds to just start horribly murdering off all the kids, (laughs) which is a weird decision for this type of movie. Like, they all just start dying, and you're like, okay... Movie, what are you heading towards? To keep you on the edge of your seat, because it opens up the possibility that all the characters are fair game, and then the tension mounts. You didn't feel the tension mount? It's like when you're at that point, there's only one character left. You're like, I get it. The characters are fair game, but you're not going to kill off the main character unless you literally couldn't think of anything else to do with them. Uh, There's two commentaries, believe it or not, on this. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would challenge that anyone... One with the parents of the actor and one with the parents of the filmmakers. <laughs> There's a selection of short d- deleted scenes. There's a short film by the filmmakers called Dental Association for a minute and 46 seconds. There's uh, a three video interviews and a trailer. Um, man, I feel bad. I uh, The people who from Epic Releasing are like the nicest people and they're like always like, oh man, I'm sorry you didn't like that one. Well, I really hope you like this next one. So far, not a lot of luck with the films that they've chosen to release. It's tough, right? Because you know that, like, we've talked about this before, but I I say this and I feel bad because when you're a filmmaker on this level, so so I'm... I'm not like BFFs. I'm friendly with the Soskas. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm friendly with the Soskas is because I gave their very first movie, which is like a no budget. It's dead hookers, a dead hooker in a trunk. Right. I saw it at a all female filmmaker, uh, film festival. That was like a one day thing of movies at some Dallas movie theater. And it was a standout in all the stuff that I watched because it's super goofy. It's almost like a trauma movie, but it stood out from, from a lot of the things that were there that day. And so at the time I was writing for Cinematical and I gave it a good review and they found that good review and we met at Fantastic Fest and we've been friendly since. They're movie talkers as if you've ever been in a film that, yeah. um, but the, yeah. So you they can't make them stop talking. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, they, I'm not like BFFs with them or anything like that, but the point is I know that filmmakers on this level that are like, I just want to know if somebody out there has seen my movie. I just want to know that somebody is talking about this thing that I worked on for like a year or two years or three years. Right. And so they Google it. And I hate, one of the things that's difficult is I'm going to be honest on the show. I'm not going to be dishonest, but I know that like there's a really good chance that the guy, the, the people who made Assassinat will be like, oh, I have my Google alerts turned on for Assassinat to see who's talking about us. Oh, here's this podcast, Digital Noise, and we fire it up, and they're like, womp, womp. And it's like, I I can deeply appreciate anybody who just goes out and makes it. Just, like, puts the effort out and gets out there and makes it. Um, But I think it's good to acknowledge as well that, that... when a filmmaker pushes back on like social media or Twitter or is like, you didn't get my movie or they express anger because you didn't like their movie. I always think it's weird that the filmmaker never thinks about the fact that there's movies that they don't like. Yeah. And no filmmaker likes every single movie. Sure. And anytime a filmmaker has done that to me, I always turn it back around on them and go, you don't even like every movie. Like it's okay for me to not like your movie because you don't like every movie. Right. Uh, How do you I get that you're taking it personally because it was your thing? And yeah. You really see all the stuff you wanted to be in there. But the simple fact you can't turn that razor eye of logic back on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would say I wouldn't discourage anyone from keeping at it. I didn't no. think it was like 
This is not like people who you were like, okay, you guys are never going to make a good film. You didn't feel that way. This just felt very much like a first film yeah. that was very half-baked. I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, so I can't I can't recommend it. I think if you do like DIY, no-budget sci-fi, uh, you know, maybe you'll find it more interesting than I did, but... Yeah, I just it, it, I think I've not I've never reached a tipping point or a breaking point, but it feels like every probably every episode I'm on there's one of these like no budget uh yeah, it's 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 the true indies. Yeah. The really like the truest of true indies. And I and the other thing too is I've been in movies like this. Like I've I've literally been in movies on this level. Yeah. And it's like, I get it. It's freaking hard. Yeah. It's hard. And sometimes it's just a matter of you can't execute what's in your brain onto film. And that's just a challenge of it as well. I can't count how so, many movies I've seen by people I know or friends with that they acted in or wrote or directed that I'm like, oh, God, I fucking that was not good. And then you have to be nice about it. I was lucky with you with Zero Charisma. That we, <laughs> If you had a chance, it was charisma. is fucking great. Uh, you and the, the main star are both friends. Sam, yeah. And I was like, wow, that was really genuinely good, which is kind of always a surprise with these micro-budgeted little like genre films. You're like, wow, I can't believe that was really great. I loved it. Anyway, our next one is also kind of micro-budgeted, but with a decent cast to it, which is Deep Murder. Oh, yeah. This is the oddest idea. I am totally original. For a comedy horror I may have ever come across. So it's a parody film, but the parody is really specific. And the the parody of it is, what if characters from a softcore porno <laughs> witnessed an, and had to solve an actual murder? Right. And and they still live in the world of the softcore porno, but like a meta world where some of them begin to self-actualize and go, wait a minute, like I'm supposed to be a mother, but all I do all day is have sex. And yeah. like they begin to break down as, yeah. as humans. Yeah. And they start to, yeah, they start to realize that they have these weird limitations that are there that is, that are not designed to handle a scenario where there's a murderer running around because their reaction to most things is to go fuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and it starts with uh, uh, Jerry O'Connell, who's sort of like the patriarch uh, or, or uh, the side patriarch of a family, like the brother, I think. Yeah, of the, pa- of the patriarch who's played by Christopher McDonald, but he gets he's having an affair with the wife who's played by Katie Asselton, and he ends up getting murdered, and then one at a time, other characters start disappearing or getting murdered. Uh, and there's a lot of familiar faces in here. Uh, Jessica Parker Kennedy, who I've mentioned earlier, she was uh, she actually plays Nora on The Flash, the daughter. Chris Red from Saturday Night Live makes a big impression. Yeah, he's playing the generic jock guy. Yeah, she's playing a character who literally is just called babysitter. Yeah, who's the babysitter for full adult? <laughs> uh, everybody who appears in this thing is familiar. Stephanie Drake was on Mad Men for the last four seasons, and this is made by the people who made the infamous uh, Don Cheadle Captain Planet. Funnier Die video. Oh, I never saw that. Uh, yeah, where Don Cheadle plays <laughs> Captain Planet, <laughs> like a modern day live action Captain Planet. They, these were writers and directors of a lot of uh, pretty well known sketch videos from Funnier Die that got together okay. and finally made their first feature film. Well, and they and they they're in the movie as well. So the guy that plays like the detective is one of them. Yeah, who comes the, out of nowhere about halfway through the movie. the main kid who looks like uh, what's his face from um, the, the main actor in this looked just like. Uh, it's great when I can't remember two names. I can't remember the main actor or who he looked like. 
Um, Quinn Beswick? Quinn, Quinn Beswick looks like the guy from Love and yeah. I Love You, Beth Cooper. That right. guy. What's that guy's name? I don't know. All right, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the weird thing about this movie is, like I said, it's very low budget. And it's one of those at first, God help you if you don't know ahead of time what the, the, the premise is. I did. I read the back cover. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. But if I hadn't, I would have been baffled for like 20 minutes at least. What the fuck is going on in this movie? It definitely would help to know that what we've said. It's a it's a weird meta softcore like porno that the characters suddenly have to break out of their pre existed routines and and deal with a murderer. And it, over time, at first, I'm like, "Well, this is cute." I'm not sure how I feel about it. And by the end, I was like, "I really enjoyed that." It did so many goddamn weird as fuck shit things along the way that were yeah. not what I would have expected. Like so many. Like, organic to that premise, but of course you've never seen it happen before because nobody's ever done a movie with this premise before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. It's still a little half-baked. It still felt like it could have used a, fin- a bit of a finish on the script, but I got to say it was really enjoyable. Yeah, I think that um, from a parody film standpoint, you know, they're throwing gags at the screen whether dialogue or visual gags or like an actual like scene as a gag. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're staging those literally nonstop. And so as a parody film, you get, a lot of times a measure of success is what's their hit and miss ratio is their hit and miss ratio working in favor of their hits. And I think for this movie, uh, deep murder, it is, I think they, they're, they are way more hit than miss in regards to funny lines. Um, I think if there's anything that I, that was a little weak about it, I, the guys who did write and direct it, who put themselves in the film, I don't know that they are ready yet to support the weight of an entire film. They have to carry a lot of performance stuff through it. Like, right. I don't know that I ever bought that guy as an actual detective sure. or even a porno detective. He literally looked like a comedy writer. Right. right. <laughs> um, and so little things like that, that didn't, that didn't quite sell the, the parody effect that they were working for. Also, um, it's shot in a weird gauzy kind of soft focus that it resembles cable TV and they shoot it all in the same mansion. And I, I honestly, my eyes got a little tired. Like I wanted them to change locales or shoot something differently. I, I found myself visually disinterested by the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, weird as that sounds, but it was, it was not a boring movie, but like my eyes were bored. It was a, hard, a little hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but this is worth seeking out, especially if you like uh, parodies. If you're into like you know you like Airplane and Naked Gun and stuff like that, and it's it's certainly more on the side of those than it is like the movie movies, yeah, epic movie and date movie and the kind of things that pass for parody now. Again, the the target is so weirdly specific that if you have not seen uh, you know '90s cable softcore porn then this might not, you might not even comprehend this film. But if you have, uh, there's something to enjoy in here. Well, still continuing to talk about uh, sex and porn, we go into our next film, which is the 1980 William Friedkin rarely seen film, Cruisin'. Now, this has been on my, man, it's weird that I've never seen this list for a very, very long time, because it's fucking William Friedkin, and it's got Al Pacino in the lead. And you're like, I remember... Like, I, when I'm growing up studying film, this got mentioned all the time, but not necessarily in a positive way. Certainly, this movie was 
deeply controversial when it came out, and yeah. I don't think time has done it any favors either. Um, it's not that surprising that Arrow was able to get a hold of a film that you'd think otherwise a major studio would want to re-release, but it's deeply problematic. <laughs> I mean, so much so that the crew themselves started protesting the film before it was even done. Uh, Al Pacino plays a detective in New York City who is assigned to go undercover in the the homosexual West Village bar scene because somebody is murdering people in the scene. And they're sort of like heavy-duty leather. Yeah, hard, the hard leather. SM everybody scene. dresses just like the cop from the, the, the village people. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he's, even though he's a heterosexual guy, and in fact in relationship with Karen Allen, uh, he has to pretend to be this guy and go in and just basically try and keep his ears open hanging out in these bars. And that story never becomes as interesting as or impactful as you think, as the filmmaker seems to think he's being with it. Like this guy, is he questioning his sexuality? Is he, how, what's going on with all of that? It just feels like he's afraid to kind of deeply get into it, but he wants to like faint at having some bigger questions there. I think those come with a second viewing. I think the way that this movie ends almost immediately demands a second viewing. But the question is, I think that the film is so unpleasant mm-hmm. that I, a, an immediate second viewing is not something that I could see a lot of people wanting to do. Um, is this something you did? No, oh, no, okay, no, no. Fair. But when I got to the end, I was like, I would really like to now watch the movie again, knowing what I know. But I also did not want to watch the movie. Again. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> and I don't know when I would ever. I don't know when I would ever want to. It's, a, uh, it's kind of an ugly murder film that doesn't ever really wrap up its storyline that's kind of doesn't isn't that concerned with the murders really i strongly disagree and i don't want to get into spoilers okay uh but i strongly disagree with what you're saying uh and there's no way for me to address this without getting into spoilers fair uh so i just i found it very meandery um i don't know just very like, they're almost trying to do, like, more of a slice-of-life movie in some ways, but mixed with Seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, Al Pacino is kind of almost a non-character as the lead character. He's very... doesn't have much to do except look baffled by everything that's happening around Can him. we talk spoilers? This movie came out in 1980. Okay. I want people to discover it, but I'm sort of like, can we? have you ever done a spoiler warning on one of these where you've spoiler said fast-forward? We're talking spoilers. Give us just a minute. Yeah, go. He's the killer. You think he's the killer? Dude, the movie ends where it's pretty freaking clear that he's the killer. He sets up that other guy, and then they find out that that other guy's prints weren't on the weapon or whatever, and and the movie freaking ends with him looking dead into the camera. He's the killer. I did not And he hates his homosexuality. Hates it, which is also why when he comes back from Prowling the Night, he comes home and hate fucks the shit out of Karen Allen. He is a man at conflict with himself deeply, okay. deeply a conflict with himself. I missed all of And when the movie ends, I was like, I need to see this whole thing again because that is crazy. <laughs> but I didn't want to watch the whole thing again. No. no. It, it's, like you said, not a pleasant watch. So for me, I found it to be, I found the finale to be a twist ending because it's very, so it really from where Servino goes into the, when Paul Servino goes into the apartment complex of the guy that they find murdered in the bathroom, 
and they investigate that crime scene, there's a discussion where they talk about the fact that none of the stuff that they're seeing in this crime scene lines up with the guy that they had in custody Mm -hmm. who also didn't have prints on the knife that they had. And then it goes to Pacino at home telling Karen Allen, like, he's going to be, like, he's going to be back and all that stuff. And he goes and he's shaving or whatever. And he looks, he's, like, looking dead in the mirror as, like, the audience nod of, like, yeah, I was the one that was killing people. Like, Oh, see, I didn't get that at all. I got that that whole thing was him going, yeah, I'm back, and I'm back to have a normal relationship, and him saying things are never going to be normal again after what I went through. I think he's forcing himself in, into, like, okay, I, maybe I have this out of my system and I can be normal again. Wow, I did not see that. Um, but there's the Blu-ray here comes with the history of cruising. 21 Minutes was an archival featurette with interviews and background information. Uh, there's exercising cruising for 22 Minutes, another archival piece uh, with a lot of interviews and talk a lot about the controversy about and the protests both during it and after. Those, it answered one of my questions. The quality of the audio in this film is really bad. And mm-hmm. it answered the special features actually directly answered one of my questions, which was everything was ADR and ADR poorly. Uh, like it was really bad. It was almost like dubbing, especially in outdoor scenes. The outdoor scenes were so heavily protested. There were people literally everywhere yelling and making as much noise as possible when they were shooting anything outside right. that everything had to be ADR. They could not capture any usable audio uh, on set that way. Wow. That's yeah. heavy duty. Um, but yeah, it's like as if every gay person in the village has the exact same idea of sexuality, mm-hmm. which is like heavy, hard leather biker guys who yeah. have police night. And that's, and that's the, you know, the, the, if you're wondering what the controversy is specifically, it's this idea that here is this studio thriller that's coming out that's big budget that has an acclaimed actor. It's going to be a big studio movie. And it goes, it, it's the first time, one of the first time that, that homosexuals on film are getting, quote unquote, getting a big studio release where they're represented. Mm-hmm. And they're representing one subculture, which is hard leather SM. And they're also representing it as, uh, as you know, grotesquely perverse and unpleasantly violent mm-hmm. and skeevy, and and so it's a matter of representation of it being like you know, you're hey you're being told by a studio oh we're going to make this movie, <laughs> and the book had been out so people had an awareness of what the content of the book was. The book was already controversial, which is how when the movie was starting up they knew. All right, this is this is a problem because we're trying to fight for identity. Yeah. We're trying to l- let people know that we're we're just your neighbors, right. and this movie is going to come out. And it's going to set us back twenty years. Yeah, and it and in some ways it did because they were making cruising jokes and references all the way through the nineties in movies. If a gay club was represented, it was handkerchiefs and guys in leather vests and yep. little cop hats, like. Yep. That's just the way it was. Blue Oyster. Yeah. <laughs> From the Police Academy movies? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also two audio commentaries, both with William Friedkin on them, uh, one with Mark Kermode joining him. I, I, this is was just, I really, I like Friedkin a lot as a director. I was super excited to see this. It did not resonate with me at all, and it's not because I'm grossed out by yeah. the gay aspect by any means. It was just almost cartoonish the way it's represented here. It's... Uh it is graphically sexual in ways that it's funny that it's still graphically sexual today. Like you don't see R rated releases with the amount of, uh, 
graphic sexuality on display. Oh yeah. Uh, certainly not homosexual sexuality, but just sexuality in general. Um, so we've regressed in some ways there as a thriller. It's just not particularly thrilling. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, as a, as a movie, if you're just going to judge it as like a dark thriller and like a, a mystery and like a cop movie, it's not a particularly thrilling movie. It's kind of repetitive. Um, you know, so in that regard, it's not, it's not, it's not grandly entertaining. I found the intro, I found the ending fascinating, but I didn't like the movie enough for a fascinating ending to make me all of a sudden fall in love with the movie. Fair. Well, our final film today is the DC animated movie universe. Uh, the 35th film that they've put out, Batman Hush. I gotta tell you, I was not excited for this. <laughs> the way you said Batman Hush was like, shut up, Batman. It's a new movie called Batman Shut Your Mouth. <laughs> I'm tired of your lip, Batman. Batman, you hush. Go, go to the principal's office. Uh, and Jeff Loeb should have gone to the principal's office for writing this really wildly overrated arc. And I, I mean, people, Love this still, and I've never really understood why. There's there's one reason why Jim Lee is coming to draw Batman. Yeah, like like, and at the time that he did that, so you have Jim Lee's big run of X Men. Yeah, you have his image work, which is sporadic. He's doing Wildcats here and there. He's doing uh, there's some other books what in a there. Great in between. superhero artist. And now he's and then it becomes a case of like, hey, DC has Jim Lee. He's back, and he's going to do like a full year of Batman. Right, and. So the the esteem of Hush is that it's not it's not because of the writing it's because you have this artist who was like a superstar artist and they're going to come back and the and the way Hush is constructed and it isn't constructed great and part of it is because it's supposed to be like we got to make sure that we that for the comics at least that Jim Lee is drawing basically every member of the Batman family every major member of the Rogues Gallery is going to show up at one point or the other. Um, and so it's constructed to showcase that. It's so you can see Jim Lee draw the Huntress and Clayface and uh, Killer Croc and Penguin and, right. and uh, the whole gang. Um, and there's certainly the artwork is terrific during it. Yeah, and it's then you take as- that and you make an animated movie that doesn't look anything like Jim Lee's artwork, and what are you left with? Well, also, let's not forget that even – let's say you're one of those people who's a big fan of the comic book mm-hmm. for the story. I don't right. know who you are, but you're out there, obviously – this changes the story left, right, and center. Like, yeah. they, they completely change the ending, like, completely change who Hush is. They, like, I mean, it's, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, this whole book, like, the, it was a year of Batman that felt like an Elseworlds because there was so much retconning and drastic changing of certain characters and who they are as people, especially the Riddler. Um like introducing this guy who's like, no, no, this guy's been Bruce Wayne's friend forever. Thomas, yeah, you don't know it. Yeah, how? Like, I must have mentioned Thomas before, or whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, Thomas Elliot. So, like, yeah, they've been best friends their whole lives. They shared a bunch of the same type of experiences. Like, his parents died too when he was young, but he's now like the re- world renowned surgeon. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, hush, it happened. Is that why it's called Hush? It's above criticism? I I guess. I just found it all so unconvincing. And then to have even for the few people out there, not even few, there's a lot of people who like this, who are fans, they don't even stick to that story. They change so much stuff from the comic book, an unbelievable amount of stuff. Why do you think they add profanity? I don't know. To make it feel edgy? It's so edgy. Yeah, it is so edgelord. Like, I'm not... You know, I'm not a prude, but it's sort of like, oh, cool. 
Catwoman said shit. And they, like, they, like, doubled down on the romance between Batman and Catwoman here, I think, yeah. largely because that just recently in the comic books kind of came to a big head, you know? Yeah, I find these, I find, I, you know, I can't, with these DC animated movies, I, I'm not an anti-cartoon guy, and I honestly think Warner Brothers Animation has done some great stuff. I can't with these DC animated films. I, They're so... They're not paced like movies to me. They don't have ups and downs. Like, they all kind of start at one level of energy and volume and then just sort of stay there. Mm -hmm. And I also find them, like, aesthetically ugly. I think they're, I don't think they're attractive movies. Like, people's faces look weird when they turn in profile. Like, like, there's certain just drawing things where I'm like, like, why when Catwoman is three-quarter view, does her head turn into, like, a football shape with a point on the top and a point on the bottom? Like, there's, like, weird aesthetic stuff where I'm just like, that looks cheap and unfinished and just generally unpleasant. I, I, these movies are, are cheap looking to me. Uh, I know they have their fans, but that, but the fans, whatever I'm saying about Hush, it becomes irrelevant because people collect these DC films like they're comic books. Yeah. They wow. literally buy whatever the new one is, which is how this yeah. whole line of animated movies is able to sustain itself. I mean, I have all of them, and I've realized I like half of them. Yeah. Uh, and this is not in the half of ones that I like. <laughs> Weirdly, the last one I enjoyed quite a bit, which I never in a million years thought I would have enjoyed, Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But it's thoroughly charming. Is it? Yeah. I, I, so... I think that the last time there seemed to be like, I don't know if it's creatives that were there that aren't there now. Um, I don't know if it's the regular schedule because it seemed like when there was an irregular schedule and they were releasing things like Wonder Woman or Green Lantern First Flight, that was kind of the era with which I was like, I could dig some of them. Once they started doing where it's like, okay, every quarter we're always going to have a new one is sort of where I start to drop off. Mm. I liked the Supergirl one. Okay. Um, I kind of like the one with Superman. I think it was Superman versus the Elite. I thought it was okay. Yeah, I like Under the Red Hood is one of the but, best ones. Um, man, these have been really for me. These are really tough watches. I, I, these are hard, hard for me to watch. Consistently difficult for me to watch. Okay, noted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll just be like, okay, Aaron somewhere is like, yay, I got him. <laughs> well, that's fine. I mean, the one thing that I can provide is like, I am a comic fan. I mean, it's not like I'm slamming it. I am a comic fan, and I've appreciated stuff in the past. I think Justice League Unlimited is one of the best DC animated or live action anythings as a representation of the DC universe. Agreed. But man, these, these quasi half-assed anime films are just woof. Maybe you just keep getting the bad ones. Maybe so. <laughs> uh, cause I didn't see the ninja one either. And people said the ninja one was cool. The ninja one's gorgeous looking. It's a, the story is nonsense. Stupefying. Just yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Um, but you, you might disagree, but maybe I'll like the turtles one. I don't know. I found the turtles one charming. I have no particular affection for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I was like, Oh, I kind of like this. All right. Um, so this did go back to something I'm glad that they're starting to do again. Hopefully this will become regular, which is having a completely unconnected short animated film about a completely different, like a third tier character. And here they decided to do one about Sergeant Rock. Oh, I didn't watch that. Yeah. Gotta look at the extras on these things, John. Uh, especially on these animated ones, you never know what you're going to get. And sometimes they put in a nice little like like surprise like that. It's yeah. been a, quite a few since they've done one of these, but I was like, oh yeah, it's like a fifteen minute Sergeant Rock short, which weirdly decides to make it about Sergeant Rock and the Universal Monsters team up against the Nazis. Oh, do they do Creature Commandos? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I didn't watch it. Yeah, 
Oh, creature commandos are freaking awesome. I never heard of that before. I just was sitting there going, what is happening The right creature now? commandos are great, and I highly recommend that trade paperback. You should put it in the Amazon links, the, just the trade. I'd never heard of that, and I was like, I didn't know what was happening. I was like, wasn't this a war comic? What is going on? So good. <laughs> He's like, here's a Dracula. I, I take back everything I said about this DVD now. Here's a Dracula, a werewolf, and a Frankenstein. I know that's not how you're supposed to say it, but... Uh, yeah, I believe he's Dracula's monster. <laughs> Dracula's monster. I don't know. I was like, I found myself just kind of scratching my head watching this, but I'm, John will love it. Uh, there's Batman Love in the Time of War, which is about 17 minutes look at uh, the relationship between Batman and Catwoman, which has been certainly through multiple different iterations of Batman and not just the comic book has been a big thing forever and ever. And just recently culminated with them almost getting married, which was deeply annoying. They like spent like three years building up to it. And then you have this giant marriage issue. And at the end, she's like, you know, I don't know if I want to get married. You're like, oh, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> uh, there's a, an audio commentary with the producer, the director, and the screenwriter. There's a sneak peek at the next one, Wonder Woman Bloodlines, for ten minutes, which is coming out in October, uh, which is a, uh origin story for Wonder Woman again, and a prequel to 2014's Justice League War. And then there's a look back at Batman Assault on Arkham. And then from the DC vault, you have the episode of Batman the Animated Series Catwalk. Usually they try and do ones that are have some tertiary connection to whatever the film is. I honestly, I didn't watch it, so I'm not sure what the connection there might be. Um, so yeah, it's just, this is not one of the better ones. Meh. <laughs> but that is it for Digital Noise. Uh, John and I telling you of all these, I know it's hard to believe with a movie with a title, uh, like, what is it? How do I love you? Is that what it was? Uh, how long will I love love you? you? Letter you. Yeah. How long will I love letter you? That's the one for you guys who like genre movies to go watch. Yeah. Really great. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, I'll be back in another week and a half or so with another digital noise with Aaron. Uh, please use those Amazon links on click on to buy anything that you're thinking about buying, uh, that we might, might have talked about. Or in fact, if you start from those Amazon links, anything that you buy after you start from our links, we get a kickback. I would honestly say it's very few times I would give any, anybody a recommendation for a pure blind buy. I think how long, how long will I love you deserves a blind buy. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. 